Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 313 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Carrie Byron. From 2003 to 2016, she was one of the hosts of the popular Discovery Channel show Mythbusters, and she's also appeared on the Science Channel shows Punkin' Chunkin', Large Dangerous Rocket Ships, and Head Rush, as well as the Nat Geo series Positive Energy. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new book, Crash Test Girl, an unlikely experiment in using the scientific method to answer life's toughest questions. And now, here's our interview with Carrie Byron. All right, so we're here with Carrie Byron. Welcome to the show. Hi, how you doing? Good, good. Okay, and so your new book is called Crash Test Girl. So how'd this book come about? Well, um, you know, I've never written a book before, and I'm always in for an adventure, so I thought I'd give it a try. Hmm. There's some sort of bet, right? <laughs> so you heard about that. So I was I was sitting at a bar with a bunch of random, very crazy characters, um, and uh, one of them was Homer Hickam, who wrote Rocket Boys. Um, which it became October Sky with Jake Gyllenhaal later. And uh, he basically like double dog dared me to write a book. And I was just like, no, you're an author. I don't do that. That's 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 hard and scary. I don't want to write a book. And then not long after that, I, I had been home with my um, daughter and she was talking about something at school and being scared of it. And I was like, honey, bravery isn't what superheroes do. It's it's when you're scared to death, but you do it anyway. And I kind of went, oh, man, now i got to write a book. <laughs> I have to practice what I preach. In the book, you mentioned going to New York to pitch the book to publishers. What was that like? That's, you know, it, it, it was fun because it's it's sort of outside my realm and outside of my comfort zone. And it was interesting. I'd never seen this industry before. So I enjoyed it. Um, it it's also a little gut-wrenching because you're, you're, you know, walking into a room full of people and presenting something that's in incredibly personal and trying to sell it to them. Um, it was it was wild and scary, but also such a great learning experience. I mean, what did you say? Did you have PowerPoint or like, how does that work? No, um, I, you know, I had sent them just like a really long, probably too long book <laughs> proposal um, where I think I wrote, I think, I think it was a 90 page proposal and I had a literary agent with me and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a little more old fashioned. You sit down in an office that's generally filled with books and you, you know, they've already read it and they just kind of, you know, talk you through it and decide whether it's something they want to do. I mean, how did you pitch it to them? What, like, what was the description of the book at that point? What was the description? Um, <laughs> you know, I said, you know, I said it's, it's a memoir, but it's also sort of my life methodology. It's the scientific method applied to all of life's decisions, but done. Um, it's, it's really just a, it's, it's a critical thinking tool for uh, for how I solve my problems, and I'm hoping that it'll help people solve theirs. It's sort of a, a memoir slash self-help book. Would you say that? Self-help in the way that it. Uh, this is how I helped myself, hmm. and if it works for you, go for it. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a lot of behind the scenes, mythbustery moments as well, and you know, I, I talk about a lot of things from my, you know, my growing up and my past and how I got to be where I am and. You know, the whole book is really my exploration of trying to learn how to be brave and create my own opportunities. I mean, you say in the book, uh, if I have to face creative deadlines like writing this book, my anxiety kicks in. 
I was just curious, what kind of deadline did you have and, and what was that like? Uh, well, in writing the book, we had definitely a lot of deadlines. You have to get in your draft by a certain time and you have to get in, you know, your editing by a certain time. So I, I am somebody who I don't like to procrastinate. I like to get it done early, but um, any creative deadline such as television is always so fierce and you have to get it done so quickly that, uh, um, you know, something that you have put your heart into is harder to do on a schedule. Like if, if I can just draw a drawing, I could probably do it immediately. But if somebody said, you have to do it by 3 p.m., I, I, I panic just a little bit because it's it's almost like the forcing of creativity is always something that it's harder to harness the creativity. Uh, I mean, what was it a, a, a difficult deadline for this book? Like how long did you have to, to write your first book? The deadlines um, were a bit difficult. Like I, I definitely, you know, I, all in all, the whole thing took about a year. But, you know, trying to come up with enough stories or too many stories and, you know, having, you know, I wrote entire things that got cut. Like I had an entire chapter get cut and, uh, you know, my, my brain panics a little bit because it's, it's like, it's, it's hard to write for an audience when it's about yourself. It's, it's intense writing anything that's memoiry because you have to be vulnerable and you have to put yourself on the line and you have to tell the uncomfortable stories. But um, actually writing them, um, you know, there's there's a lot of hesitation there. What was the chapter that got cut? Um, you know, the, it was I had been discussing, you know, fame in general and um, a lot of stuff from my childhood. We cut out because I don't know <laughs> the more interesting stuff happens later in life. Uh, well, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of crazy stories in this book, so I can see why it would be hard to fit it all in. I mean, my memoir would be like 12 pages long, so that wouldn't be a problem for me. <laughs> well, I think I, I got a little too eat, pray, love um, to start because I, I, I the, my, some of my most intense experiences and a lot of my stories come from my year backpacking around the world when I had no money and I was scared out of my mind and I was by myself and I was taking crazy risks. And I, I think um, if I had just done a book on my travel experience, I think that would have been like a million page book at that point. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, because I'm catering a lot to my audience, which knows me mostly from Mythbusters, I, I think that, um, Everybody really wanted me to lean a lot heavier on my Mythbuster experiences, whereas it's, you know, though that is what I'm known for, it's such, you know, it's it's a very distinct chapter in my life, and I've had so many others. Well, it's funny reading this book because there will be things like, oh, the woman walking in front of me got hit by lightning, or I got chased out of the hotel by police with machine guns, and they're each just sort of like a paragraph, you know, whereas I feel... I know! <laughs> <laughs> Those are like... Funny little anecdotes you tell when you're on Letterman. They're, it, it's, uh, you know, they were big, heavy life experiences for me. Yeah. Um, okay, well, so speaking of Mythbusters, I did want to ask you, because, I mean, this this book really gives sort of a behind-the-scenes view of the TV show and sort of how how shoestring it kind of actually was in, in a lot of ways. Uh, I, I Actually, I saw in an interview, like, I think, where you said that the parts where you're talking with your co-stars, a lot of times you had to do it three times in a row because you only had one camera and they had to get three shots. So you had to sort of run through it three times. Yeah, I think people would be really surprised to know when we were just like a scrappy little startup show on cable, how little money we actually could get away with spending. I mean, we turned all of our explosions into training exercises for the bomb range so that we could incorporate 
them into our budget without actually paying for a lot of stuff. Uh, we had, you know, the very skeleton crew. You know, I, I've done commercial shoots before where you walk in and there's like a hundred people on set and they're all just devoted to lighting. And, you know, there'd be two people that move props three inches, hmm. you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's like this crazy amount of people. But then our show, which is doing science and explosions and builds and all of this crazy stuff, we'd have like one camera and a sound person and maybe a second camera putting up some GoPros and, you know, all of us were just, you know, Tori and Grant and I would actually be doing the setup and all of the cleanup and, you know, that we'd have maybe a researcher and a production person working on Like it was just a really, really small crew. And I think um, because it was so sort of down and dirty and, and scrappy and everybody pitched in, I think it also, I think it gave the show a lot of like joy and spirit that you don't see on heavily produced things. So, sorry, you said that you were using it for bomb training as well to save costs? What, <laughs> yeah. Well, the uh, Alameda Sheriff's, um, uh, the Alameda County Sheriff's Department um, and their bomb squad is the best trained in all of the country. And I think that we gave them a lot of experience, like practical experience and things that were sort of outside of the box because there would be no reason for them to drop a car <laughs> full of thermite onto the back end of another car and see if it explodes like that's just a scenario that's insane but it was a myth we'd be doing so they actually get a practical knowledge of what that looks like so you know they train bomb techs all over the country and uh, you know we had a full decade where we would be going up to the bomb range and doing crazy wild practical explosions with c4 anfo or you know propane, you know, anything that we could find is some some really alternative ones that we weren't even allowed to talk about, but the FBI mixed up for us. So uh, we we turn, we learned early on that if you want to fire guns, you call the cops. If you want to set a fire, you call firemen. If you want to blow something up, you call the bomb squad. And, you know, in, in our TV realm, we didn't have pyros and all of the kind of things that you have in LA. We had like the real guys that do it. So I, I think that kept our costs down. Huh. That's really cool. I mean, you say um, for the first four years of being on a hit TV show, even though I was slowly making a little more each season, I was still living below the poverty line. <laughs> yeah, I remember I was I was, you know, I had like a I think I was making 400 bucks a week. And that was before the taxes were taken out. So, um, you know, living in San Francisco, that was that was that was a tough one for a while. But um, I had a night job to help support it. I mean, but, you, you know, that was cable TV back then. That was that was what you did. I was a builder. I wasn't, you know, like just because I got pushed in front of the, the camera didn't make it glamorous. You know what I mean? Well, yeah. And just to explain for listeners. So you actually you you were in you were an intern. Uh, you were doing this for free at Jamie Heineman's shop and just kind of mm -hmm. it was when uh, Mythbusters was just getting started that first day. And so you kind of got roped into that. Yeah, well, I was an intern for, I wanted to get into special effects and toy prototyping because I'm a sculptor. And Jamie's shop, that's what they did. You know, they were doing, um, you know, I'd be carving parts and for leapfrog toys that would actually go to China. And those would become the um, the prototypes for the toys themselves. And then you'd see them in the stores later. Like I was doing all sorts of work for him. And it just happened that Mythbusters was filming on my first day as I came in. And, you know, slowly I was, you know, the the 
of course, you know, the production was very scrappy. And so, like, because I was working for Jamie, I was also helping out behind the scenes of the show because it was just fun. All of the things they were doing were wild. You know, they they were like, hey, we're going to go take a an Impala to the desert in the Mojave and we're going to j- strap some Jado rockets to the top of it and I'm going to remote control it from a helicopter. I mean, how do you not? asked to help out on that. I didn't care that I wasn't getting paid. I just wanted to show up because it was interesting. Hmm. And so you had never uh, set it as a goal to be a TV host or anything. That just That's just something that just kind of evolved organically? Absolutely. I was incredibly shy. So to talk to the camera was very awkward. And I think if you look at some of the early episodes, I'm thinking of one in particular where um, you know, when we started really hosting, which would be like me, Scotty, and Tori, where we were testing uh, the raid, testing police radar with little tricks like covering your car in foil. And um, I remember watching that episode and seeing us talk to the camera, and it is just so awkward and clunky. And you can tell that we're ridiculously uncomfortable because there's not one of us that set out with any acting or television hosting goals. I mean, Scotty was a welder and Tori worked special effects. And, you know, I was I was trying to get into that industry. I mean, even Jamie and Adam weren't TV personalities. So for, for us, it was all just, it was just this crazy opportunity to do something interesting and fun. And it turned into a television career. Yeah. and But there's even a part in the book where you, uh, you, break your knee, I think. And you, you're telling people um, to just drive you drive me to the hospital because you said I couldn't afford an ambulance ride. <laughs> I mean, you know, healthcare in this country. <laughs> no, ambulance is very expensive. I've just, you know, I've always been somebody who's who's uh, scrappy. I've, I've, I remember when I first broke my knee and all the Australians were just looking down at me. They're like, what do you mean? Don't don't call an ambulance. They thought it would just be a natural thing to do. I'm like, no, 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 no. Just put me in the car. You can drive me there. It's fine. I've done this before. <laughs> so w- when did that start changing that you started feeling more financially uh, stable? Uh, you know, it took a while before I went and actually got an agent. And um, then that's when we started to actually get more of what we were worth. And then we started getting commercial endorsements and that sort of thing. I mean, reality television, I think, changed the industry because, it, you know, people were willing to just let their lives be filmed. And it wasn't a union show. It was very different. And, uh, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. We were just having fun. But, uh, you know, when the show got really, really popular, I got myself an agent and he's the one that came in and went, no, this is this is what you're worth. This is what you're supposed to be making. And all of us were like, really? Hmm. Awesome. Let's do that. <laughs> well, you have a sort of a sidebar in the book called Negotiating While Female that I thought was really good. I read it to my girlfriend. I was like, oh, this is good stuff. You got to you got to check this out. I think it's a really hard thing for anyone to do is to try to negotiate for yourself and know your own worth and be able to walk away when it's not up to your standard or, you know, find ways to get paid more without actually asking for more money. It's, it's, um, it's, it's especially tough. I find as a a woman, I mean, I've just been taught very differently about how to negotiate and I've, I've seen it with, you know, I've got a daughter now and I, I see it with the way little girls and little boys, carry themselves and the way that they interact with their teachers. We just are often taught to be a lot more um, accepting of what's offered rather than to walk in knowing what we're worth and and asking for it. You say in the book, a visible bra strap in post-production would trigger an automatic reshoot. Could you? (laughs) That was, that was crazy. Uh, You know, we, um, you know, 
on on the show we had a lot of cooks in the kitchen sometimes and you know the the network got really crazy for a while that if they saw a bra strap come out of a tank top then they'd ask us to reshoot i was just thinking god that seems like a lot of money for something that everybody everybody knows you're wearing a bra is it really that big a deal but i don't know if this was just the olden days or <laughs> if they were just being oversensitive um but you know the the longer the show was on the more censored I guess we got, like when we first started out, there was a lot of humor that was off color, but in sort of that Warner Brothers cartoon kind of way where it's like, if you're an adult, you'll get it. If you're a kid, you won't get it. But then as the show went on more and more, it was like, you can't say the word hell. You can't say the word fart um, more than once in this episode. Like that bra strap means that we're going to have to reshoot this whole blueprint and everybody just be like, wait, what? Why? Why wouldn't the content matter? Why is that a Why is that a thing? But you know, I I was above my pay grade to make those kind of decisions, so I would just do it. So that was in the episode of, that's about farting. They said you couldn't say fart more than once. Yeah, we had to come up with other ways of saying it because that was considered a bad word. So we were saying things like Chanel number two. Uh, we looked at, we, you know, we Googled other ways to say it, you know, uh, ham slam, um, like pass gas. Like we were running out of ways <laughs> to say the word fart. And I was just like, come on guys, that is a, that, that's a, that's a pretty, uh, innocuous word if you ask me. Yeah. That's really weird. I mean, in the book, there's this character who you call Colonel Kurtz, uh, after the character in Apocalypse <laughs> Now. And uh, yes. he's, he's, he's a producer on the show who's very, very difficult to work for. And uh, you say uh, he burned his reputation from one network to the next. Now he's mostly an online troll. Can't wait for him to pan this book. It will only expose him if he does, though. I was just curious if any uh, if there have been any further developments with Colonel Kurtz. Here's the thing. I don't follow him. So the only way I'll know is if somebody tells me I'm I'm I haven't seen anything so far. Um, I am not in communication I, I found him to be a very abusive person, so I, I tried to keep my distance at all times. He'll probably hear this too, but uh, he was my he was my hashtag me too person for sure. He was he was kind of a horrible, abusive person. But you know, we all have those kind of bosses at some point in our life. I don't know how many people listen to this podcast, so you're probably safe. <laughs> Oh, I'm sure it's getting more popular. What are you talking about? It's, it's about to take off. No, I, I think this is quite popular. Well, that's uh, I appreciate you saying that. Um, but, <laughs> but all right. So um, I also want to talk about Mythbusters and science fiction, since this is a show for science fiction fans. And I kind of went through um, actually uh, Myth Mythbusters and the White Rabbit Project, and I uh, pulled out some episodes that I think would be of special interest to science fiction fans. So we've got Mind Control, Anti-Gravity Device, Superhero Hour, Zombie Special, and Star Wars Revenge of the Myth on Mythbusters, and on White Rabbit Project, Superpower Tech, and Where's My Hoverboard? I strongly recommend people go check those out. Um, are there, is, do you think that's a good list for science fiction stuff? Or is that's there a great else? list. No, I mean, that's a great list. We're, you know, we're all a bunch of geeks ourselves, and all of us are big old sci-fi fans. Um, Tori and I tried forever to pitch a show that tested the science of science fiction or tried to meld the two genres because we were just such big science fiction fans. But um, my favorite really was the Superpowers episode from White Rabbit Project. I feel like 
that um, there's a clip where Tori and I practice. So the whole idea of the show is that uh, we are going to test things that are in science fiction and see if we can emulate them with current technologies. And we each picked a superpower and I picked mind control. And the closest thing we could find were these guys called uh, that were doing this thing called Backyard Brains, where they do neuroscience for the 99% is what they call it, which is just amateur neuroscience. So they've got this, they've got this little device that um, you can hook electrodes up to the muscles on your arm and then hook the electrodes up to the muscles in, uh, you know, Tori's arm at this, in this case. And, you know, my brain would send a signal to my muscles to contract. So I move my arm and Tori's brain is left out of the equation. When my muscles contract, it signals his muscles to contract through the, the electrodes that are hooked up to him. So, uh, he has to do whatever my arms puppeteer him to do. I invite him out to dinner and just torture him with delicious food that he can't eat because I make it, him spill it all over himself, himself. And it was just, it was so much fun to do. And it was the closest thing to science fiction I could actually muster. And certainly on the show, it seems like he genuinely, genuinely doesn't know what he's in for. And that, that was true. <laughs> oh, he had no, we didn't tell him anything. Yeah. He was, um, not only shocked, but scared when he got there. And he's just like, seriously, what does this do? And I'm like, you'll see. <laughs> it was funny watching, you know, that um, in contrasting with the mind control segment on Mythbusters, because um, in the mind control on Mythbusters, there wasn't much that you guys came up with. You know, it was kind of a it was kind of funny where there's you have this bike helmet with a crystal on it to try to, you know, transmit to amplify your psychic powers and stuff like that. And just to go from that to the White Rabbit one where it's like, wow, I, I didn't know technology can do that. That's pretty impressive. And it just makes well, me wonder. Well, on, on, on uh, White Rabbit Project, we were kind of jumping down rabbit holes of like things that we had less – we had less constraints. Whereas Mythbusters, you have to find a myth. So we actually had to find things that people thought were true and test whether they were true or not rather than just implementing some wackadoo technology. So, I mean, we tried to do a lot of science fiction on – Mythbusters, but it was really hard for us to do because if it was already a proven thing, we didn't really test it. So we had to go for things like, can you control somebody's mind with crystals? <laughs> Which was, uh, it's really hard keeping an open mind with stuff like that because clearly I come in with a lot of skepticism and I think it's all crazy. So to, to try to come up with a legitimate test was always the hardest to do when it came to science fiction. Like, sure, we can test whether the Ewoks could take out an AT-AT, but it's in a galaxy far, far away. I mean, what's the, you know, what is the density of the wood in the Ewok village? I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's science fiction was always a, something we wanted to do, but it was real tough within the constraints of Mythbusters. Well, right. Just to explain that for people who might not have seen it. So there's a, uh, there's a scene in Return of the Jedi where the Ewoks have this, these two logs that smash an ATSD walker and you're testing whether a log arrangement like that would actually be able to do it. And first of all, you think that the people that listen to your show don't know that scene <laughs> from Star Wars? Come on. Yeah, that's a, that's a fair point. Although, you know, it's funny. I mean, a lot of these things, I, I thought that they weren't going to work and then they did. I, I, you know, like I said to my girl, my girlfriend and I were watching that and I was just like, that's, there's never going to crush the, the armored car. Uh, and then it totally did. I'm like, wow, the, all these movies were so much more, um, educational than I ever realized. <laughs> you could spin that as education. Sure. Let's go with that. <laughs> They're going to start watching uh, Star Wars in school. <laughs> I, yeah, I would totally be down with that. 
Um, but yeah, oh, so so I didn't realize though that so the the cyborg cockroach and the electrodes to control the arm that that existed at the time you did the mind control episode of MythBusters and you just couldn't cover it because it was too like scientific or too uh, not in dispute. No, that didn't actually. I mean, it may have existed, but I had never found it at that point. I, I believe all of that stuff is just um, some new experimenting that they're doing. I'm I'm sure some variation of that um, existed, but I. That particular technology, I did not know of until recently. Well, yeah, that's what that was. What I was wondering if you ever do another mind control episode of a show in ten years or something. There, there's going to be like radio waves that actually control people's thoughts and stuff. You know, I mean, the, it'll actually mess that. with the chips that are implanted in your head now. Yeah, Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> that'd be awesome. Unless you wear a tinfoil helmet, that's the important. That's the key thing. Yeah, that's always. I've got one of those in my zombie kit. You know, just <laughs> just in case. Yeah. Um, and then in the episode, uh, where's my hoverboard? Uh, there's a part where you're, you're kind of standing on a stage interacting with the hologram of a person and it looks very impressive. Uh, is, is that how, how, what is that? Does that actually look like that in real life? There's like a person standing there and you can, it's like, they're standing no, it's, it's way less impressive in real life. It really is like a super old parlor trick. Um, it, you know, it was, it was one of those things that um, I was hoping for it to be like an actual person was standing next to me, but it, it really was a lot of mirrors and projection and, um, uh, you know, a, a piece of glass at the right angle. I mean, it's a trick that people had been using for a long time for magic shows and to like seances to make people think that ghosts are in the room. So it's just, it's just a piece of glass with the image on it. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I hate to disillusion you. It's not, it, we're still not at the point where Princess Leia can be projected right in front of you next to R2-D2 in a way that would be super convincing. Yeah. Well, that's disappointing. But I mean, some of this stuff was, was pretty cool, too. I mean, there was this guy, he has this sort of tail coming out of the back of his neck, and it looks at, he's... uh color blinds and it, and it sort of points at colors and plays a little radio frequency or something that allows him to know what what colors he's looking at oh yeah that's i mean there's definitely a lot of things that are are really cool and i i i'm i'm still i'm i'm still very impressed by like everything that blade runner and neuromancer actually predicted that became real things in modern society so i'm hoping that I'm hoping in my lifetime we will have hover cars and hoverboards and in a way that feels very, uh, you know, Marty McFly-ish. Mm -hmm. You also talked to this guy who had these bionic boots. It looks like from the show, it looks like they were a little hard to use. Were you? What, what was your experience with that? I mean, me personally, I am not the most coordinated and athletic person. So when I put on the bionic boots, I was terrified. I thought I was going to break my face. But he is the, the man who actually invented those is clearly an expert and he could run in them like it was nobody's business. I think it would take me a little more training for sure. No, I, I thought they looked really cool. I mean, they sort of have these um, these extra legs that come out from b below your heel and make contact with the ground. And I have a lot of experience rollerblading, so I thought, oh, I could probably. I could probably give this a shot. I mean, it was definitely, it was, it was, they go, they go so fast that it just, it feels like you're going to fall. I mean, I was really impressed by how well he could pull it off, but he's been going through, he's had so many different prototypes. I, I, I think he's worked up to it. I really just strapped him on that day and tried him out. Yeah. 
Um, okay, so also in the book, you, you, you're talking about your different types of friends, and you say that one of the things you like to do is text buddies who watch Game of Thrones, The Walking Dead, and American Gods with me from our respective couches. So it's just yep. curious, what kind of messages are you sending to people while you're watching TV shows? Well, you know, when I was a kid, you, we, we used to just sit on the phone and watch TV uh, together because, you know, when you're in high school, you can't be at your friend's house. So now I think I've got those, still got those friends. Like, we'll be watching The Walking Dead and be like, oh, come on, that tiger's not real. Or, you know, just talk about the plot line. Or It's really just like, it's like watching the show with my friends, but through texting. So it's a, it's a little, it makes it more fun, a little more appointment TV when you know that somebody's going to be commenting with you because I, I really do like all of those sci-fi kind of shows. And I, you know, my, my husband is, is more of a documentary kind of guy. So for me, it's, it's nice to have those friends. Um, like one of the researchers from the show, Eric Haven, he, he's a comic book. Uh, he draws comic books and he's a comic enthusiast. And I always know that he's going to have some sort of insight from reading all the comics that I did not know about. Well, that's interesting. You mentioned your husband because in the book you say that if you guys had been matched on a dating site, you would have like zero percent match. <laughs> We're just into different things. Absolutely. Uh, it's one of those opposites attracts kind of things. Uh, but I mean, it's sort of an interesting I don't know if there's how much scientific research has been done on this, but the, the premise of dating sites is basically that the more questions in common you answer on a questionnaire, the more happy of a relationship you'll have. And I don't know if there's how much uh, actual evidence there is of that. Well, you know, I, I always wondered about that because it, it's a great filter. So if you can't stand somebody whose politics are completely opposite to yours, like it's a great way to filter it out before you go on any, any awkward dates. Like I'm not any way you can find love. I am not going to bash. I know people who've gotten married after going through those sites. Um, so it's it's it's. It's great, but I, that's one of the things I've always wanted to do is do a actual study where you, you could take somebody who, you could take a matchmaker, like, you know, the, an old fashioned matchmaker and have them choose a date for you and then have somebody use an algorithm, uh, from, from a dating site to match you up with someone and then, then do, um, I think they've got these, uh, DNA tests that can tell you who you're predisposed to love based on the actual biology and their biology. So if we could take all of these different sciences and then do a side by side, uh, you know, dating, like the dating game kind of thing and see, okay, who picked the best match for you? Cause you know, you know, when you meet someone, whether they're spark or not. So I feel like if we could do a science-based dating game, how fun would that be? Yeah, that's real. I, I don't think I've ever heard of the DNA-based matchmaking, but you sort of suggest that you and your husband, you say that just the smell of him the first time you met, you're just like, it was just like instant animal <laughs> magnetism or something. Yeah, and so I, I mean, I feel that you know, it, it is just a question of, of of Darwinism. I guess whatever I have and whatever he has is going to line up to make the strongest offspring. I don't know. So it, it was it was definitely something that um, it didn't feel. It felt different. It didn't it didn't feel like I was checking boxes. It was like I'm going to love this person no matter what. Um, I mean, I feel like maybe you could use your dating sites as a good filter, but it's really going to come down to being in person, you know? But yeah, more scientific evidence of, of that kind of stuff I think would be really interesting or if they were to do a TV show or something, that'd be really cool. I've pitched it a couple times. Uh, nobody wants to put science in their love. <laughs> I thought it would be, I would love this blind date dating game using science. So if any of the networks are listening to this podcast and they think that's a great idea, I'm your girl. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, hopefully. And so maybe some of our listeners can uh, can put some pressure on the uh, TV networks to do that. <laughs> Call uh, Netflix. <laughs> which kind of makes me think, I know, Did you fo- have you been watching The Expanse? Did you follow the whole Save the Expanse? campaign oh i totally uh, yeah i you know i follow all those on twitter and stuff i i was i was hoping that they were going to get rescued that was that's awesome i i was i was kind of hoping since eight would get rescued too but not so much yeah no i mean i was really happy the expanse got rescued and yeah since eight i think would have been my other you know top one i would have liked to see um it's just, I mean, you have the the MythBusters connection with the Expanse because Adam Savage had a had a cameo on the Expanse. Did you watch that? Um, I didn't see it, but I, I my connection is just that um, I like that kind of television as well. <laughs> like, I think we're all just a bunch of geeks and we're super into sci-fi. So I always just, you know, I I just watched it. I had no idea about his um, show till after I was already um, super into it. Uh-huh. Uh, are there any other shows that you're really into right now? Oh, like science, goodness. science fiction, fantasy kind of shows. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think. I, I just I just watched Altered Carbon, and I I mm. loved that one. That one was super weird. It just felt very Blade Runnery because Blade Runner has always been one of my favorites. And so anything that's like so, like that, where it's just detective science fiction, is somehow that always intrigues me the most. Yeah, that one unfortunately is not coming back either. No, really. Break my heart, will ya? <laughs> Darn it. That one was good. Ugh. If only everybody loved exactly what I love. Yeah, no, I feel I feel the same way, yeah. Um, okay, I wanted to ask you about this thing in the book. You're talking about uh, characters you like, and you mentioned Daisy Ridley, uh, and you say, as Rey in Star Wars The Force Awakens, she wore her Jedi flats, which made sense since she was running around in the woods fighting evil Kylo Ren. There shouldn't be high heels in space. I just get really annoyed when I watch a lot of, uh, you know, when you see superheroes in high heels, it just seems so ridiculous and impractical. The old Wonder Woman, when she'd wear her high heel go-go boots, I'm like, yeah, that looks great. But really, they are so hard to run in. Why would you ever do that? Um, I was I was happy to see when uh, Black Widow had flats on when she was running in one scene that I was just like, okay, that's what you're supposed to wear. You're supposed to wear flat shoes. Boots are great because the leather will protect you. Um, that's, that's awesome. Maybe some steel toe to it, but don't run in high heels. It's going to slow you down unless a knife's going to come out of that thing. Like, what's the point? <laughs> well, yeah, I, I remember everyone talking about the scene in, um, in Jurassic World where the, the character is running away from the Tyrannosaurus Rex in high heels. Um, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> but I, I, I guess I haven't really, I, I'm going to be paying more attention to that from now on. But in, in, in outer space stuff, people are wearing a lot of high heels. Is that something I'll, I'll notice from now on? Yeah, I mean, anything superhero-y, you know, when they want to make, they always want to make, you know, the, the female character sexy. So they, they put her in high heels and she fights in high heels or she's, it's just, it's just not practical. Um, I feel like if I'm going to be fighting uh, super alien ninjas, I am <laughs> hoping to be wearing my sneakers or some boots. Yeah. Well, and actually, speaking of Ray, uh, you told a funny story about your daughter's reaction to seeing Ray in The Force Awakens. Could you talk about that? <laughs> when Ray came on and she pulled off her helmet, and my daughter was like, "It's a girl!" It was really exciting for me. Her Star Wars became so important to her, and she was just done with princesses when she saw Ray because it was like, "Okay, this is a smart." 
badass. And I could see that it was so much more interesting to her than a helpless princess that's locked in a tower. So it was it was a really fun evolution. Like she had already started the transition with Wonder Woman, who's like a fighting princess. But when Ray came along, it was over. She's just like, okay, this is my, this is the the girl I'm going to look up to. It was adorable. And it, you know, for me, it, I got to share some Star Wars joy and, and then we got to get to see the movies. I, you know, we, we don't have to only see animation animated movies. We could actually go see ones that I want to see too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, you know, there's, there's a lot of, there was a lot of backlash against Ray from certain segments of the fan community. Is your daughter like aware of that stuff yet? Or is she mercifully... Uh, insulated from that so far? Oh, goodness. I'm not going to tell her about that. That's ridiculous. I I, I hate all of the backlash that comes out when I, I feel like uh, whenever you mess with anybody's franchise, of course, there's going to be some backlash. But I enjoyed that character immensely. So I am I'm going to be part of the Team Ray for sure. Did you I remember when the a... Ghostbusters came out as a female reboot? People lost their minds. I'm like, come on, guys. It's a movie. Really? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Did you? I don't know if you follow, You saw the headlines in the last day or so where um, Kelly Marie Tran, she played Rose in The Last Jedi. Uh, apparently she just quit Instagram because of all the harassment she was getting. I don't know if you saw that. Oh, oh that is heartbreaking. That's just ridiculous. Uh, I, I did not see that, but that, that saddens me. But, uh, you know, I am in... I, I work in uh, – I live in the Silicon Valley, so uh, I watch a very um, masculine sort of affront here, and, and I feel like there's there's definitely a threatening that happens uh, when there's strong females uh, with – men who can't handle it. So um it's 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 a it's a strange world that you can't handle your your characters in movies to be girls and kick ass. I think that's crazy. But luckily Mythbusters fans and all the the audience that I generally have are full of more evolved strong men. So I haven't had to deal with quite as much as I think people who are getting into um the acting world. It just seems like we need some sort of uh filter. You know, because, you know, I think when the Internet first came around and everyone's like, oh, I can send a message to anyone in the world. This is so much fun. And then it's, it's gotten to the point where we start to realize, OK, just having anyone in the world be able to send me a message and have me actually see it is just not workable. Uh, well, there's people who are like professionally trolls. That's what they do. And they try to get a rise out of you. I've been lucky enough to kind of be on the message boards and, and go through this. I've been able to slowly thicken my skin. I think if I came into this industry right now, just, just fresh into the internet, I think it would crush my spirits because it, it can be so vicious. But, you know, I, I started slow with, you know, just some, some Craigslisty kind of message boards and I got to build my way up to being able to ignore the awful people, I guess you can say. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, speaking of Silicon Valley, I just, I just wonder if there isn't some AI program they could make that would, you know, filter the, all these comments coming in and, and, you know, be able to pick out the, the ones that you actually want to see that are actually of merit. Cause I feel like the, the obnoxious ones must be all sufficient, have a sufficient level of sameness to them that you could automate the process somehow. I'm sure there is something. I feel like if you've thought of it, somebody in the Silicon Valley has invented it. This place is is a brain trust. But I, I find the best um, a I find the best way to filter is 
you just like if you start to read a comment that's bad, just stop reading it and go on to a good one. You can't concentrate on the bad ones. I mean, I, you know, I told early on my my husband's like, don't put any pictures of me up because he does <laughs> not, he can't handle it. And I was just like, listen, you never read the comments. You could have thirty compliments and one mean one, and you'll concentrate on that. So just never. If you're having a day where you're not feeling strong about stuff, don't read the comments. I mean, I I've I've I get thousands and thousands of them, and some of the ones now that are not nice, I kind of just laugh at. Yeah, I mean, I've started implementing what I call the sort of um, is this person definitely not an asshole rule where any any comment I, I just automatically mute or delete or block people unless it's clear to me that they're not an asshole um but that's kind of the, the point i've gotten to with it yeah yeah i don't even bother with trying to block people i find that if you don't engage with mean people they they lose interest so that's when i'm i you know i do a lot of a lot of girls who are getting, or women that are getting into TV, I, I seem to have producers that I've worked with. They they ask me to talk to them. I've talked to so many women hosts about these sort of encounters and tried to counsel them. And I'm just like, my number one piece of advice is just don't engage. Never engage. The minute you engage with a troll, that's when it's going to go bad. Just let it go. No matter how offended you are, let it go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so something we've talked about a lot on this show, I'm curious to get your thoughts on, is that there have been a lot of scientists running for public office recently. There was this group called 314 Action. And there was there's one um, named Jess Phoenix I interviewed on the show. And just on the, the primaries were on Tuesday and the science candidates did not do well uh, that I'm really disappointed about. But I was just curious if, if you followed that at all or do you have any thoughts about scientists running for, for public office? I think that being a scientist is a great um, background for running for office as far as credentials and my vote. Um, I, I really, I, I hope that that continues and maybe the, the climate will slowly change to a positive pro-science climate. I know that we're in a very tough time right now um, for for science and critical thinking. So, you know, I, I, I vote for the scientists myself. I would, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping that they don't lose hope. That that's yeah. one thing a scientist has is that tool of critical thinking that is so important. Unfortunately, I think celebrities and um, they're better, they're better at the PR. So if you can find somebody who's a scientist celebrity, maybe that's the ticket. Uh, yeah, well, that that sounds good to me. I mean, I think part of what I was reading the the issue, and and just Phoenix, she said this too. But part of the issue she ran into is that she was just outspent by her opponents. I mean, I think they spent at least twice as much money as she did. And oh, guaranteed. It's, it's hard, you know, if you're a, just a working scientist. Uh, she was saying you don't often have the same sort of connections to big money donors that that lawyers or doctors do. Right. I mean, that makes sense. Absolutely. It's all about the advertising. Um, but yeah, so if anyone, any, anyone listening to this knows any celebrity scientists. Uh, like, how about Neil deGrasse? How about we get him up? <laughs> Neil deGrasse Tyson. Or uh, <laughs> who else is a celebrity scientist? We could, Michio Kaku. Maybe I could vote for him. I'd do that. Yeah, yeah. Or Bill Nye. I mean, got to save totally. the world from inside Congress, Bill. <laughs> or, uh, 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 
Emily Calandrelli. I'll I'd vote for her. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's great. She's perfect. She's adorably, beautifully charming, as well as wicked smart. All right. Well, Emily, if you're listening, I'm saying Emily. You. Yes, Emily, 2018. <laughs> um, okay, so I have a, a listener question for you from Ken Reed. He says, "You are described as an atheist. What is the story behind that?" Uh, <laughs> the story. I was a born skeptic, I guess. I was raised Catholic as a kid, and um, I had a lot of questions that I didn't find satisfying answers to when I was a kid. Um, you know, I couldn't understand. I guess it mostly came from when I was around seven or eight years old, and I, I kept asking this one question to my my very religious grandmother. I couldn't understand why she was telling me that my friend Courtney, she was being raised Buddhist. And I couldn't understand why she was going to purgatory for not being baptized or going to hell because she didn't believe in the same God. And I was just like, but this is a little girl. Why was she going to hell? And I think that was the catalyst moment for me where I just started to question the things that I was being taught from that particular religion. And I just, um, I somehow just, I, I moved away from it. I have massive respect for anybody who believes whatever they want to believe. I have, you know, I, I don't discuss religion with anybody. But me personally, I've just always been such a heavy skeptic. And I think science has been my religion. Yeah. Well, science fiction is my religion. Science and science fiction. I would there you go. <laughs> um, but there's kind of an interesting part in the book where you um, you're talking about a trip so you're in India, you're traveling around the world, and you're in India, and you say, uh, I thought I'd find deep answers to metaphysical questions. Didn't happen. <laughs> well, I've always, I've, you know, of course, life is difficult, and we're always looking for the answers. And I think that sometime in your, you know, when I was in my 20s, and I was really searching for searching for my place in the world. Um, you know, I, I live in San Francisco, and it's it's full of all sorts of Eastern cultural, um, you know, um, rituals and, and, and people are super into yoga here and super into Eastern medicine. And I, I think I always thought that the, that exotic places held the answers that I couldn't find. And, um, it just, that's just not how it turned out for me. I went, I went with my friend India, um, we were going to do a, a Vipassana meditation out there, which is a silent meditation, which is already insane for me. And, hmm. you know, I, I, I really just, I wanted to believe so bad that I was going to find all of the peace that people do find religion by going there and, and looking to things that were successful at other people. And it just, nothing really applied for me. I, um, I, I wrote about this in the book because I thought it was it was a really funny moment for me. Is like I was staying at this ashram and it was beautiful and like all the colors were these dusty roses and oranges. And I would get up every day and go down to this one area where we'd do um, yoga with this wonderful man that had this great giggle. And I, on the way, I'd always stop for this ritual coffee. It was this delicious thick coffee that I would drink every day. And it was so precious to me, this whole ritual. And then one day when I was just, I was, I was not going at the exact same time of day. I came to my coffee spot where they, <laughs> they had made my beautiful coffee every morning. And I found out that it was just this like really, this man with no pants and he was super hairy and sweaty was stirring a giant vat of Nescafe and condensed milk together. And I was like, wait a minute. 
my beautiful ritual coffee is, is Nescafe and, and, and condensed milk. And then I went to this, you know, yoga class and I told the, the teacher that I was going to try a meditation and he just started laughing at me and saying, why do all you Americans come here and try to be Indian? Go be American. You can't do the meditation. You never stop talking. <laughs> I just remember I had this sort of like one day where a lot of my illusions got sort of shattered all at once. I was like, you're right. Why do I keep looking for answers outside myself? Why don't I start trying to dive deeper into being me? So um, I just, I've just never been that much of a, a spiritualized religious person. This is probably going to get me all of that hate mail on the Twitter that we talked about earlier. <laughs> so thanks for that. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, but you don't read it anyway, right? So it's all right. Nah, nah. So we're good. <laughs> Well, it, 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 I thought it was so interesting what that guy said, the the yoga instructor, because he sort of w was saying like, yeah, um, you know, it, it, you, you can't really go to some exotic location to find the truth because every everywhere is 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 sort of the local for somebody is the local place for, for somebody, you know, and, and elsewhere is the exotic place for somebody. And, uh, you know, the people who live in a particular place tend to, you know, know that it's not, you know, magical or anything. Um, there's actually, there's an interesting, I think it was in Bill Maher's movie, Religious, but he's talking to someone who, you know, he's some sort of low level functionary at the Vatican. And, and the guy's kind of like, yeah, you know, the people here, they're people like anywhere else, you know, they have their foibles and, you know, this power struggles and just people are people, you know? Well, you know what they say, wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> it's, it's, you just, you, I feel like any sort of major growth that you're going to find is you're going to find it within yourself. It's not going to happen because you go to a place. It may happen because you experience a place, but it's not, you're, I just don't think you're ever going to find your true peace by looking for answers that are outside yourself. Yeah. Um, in the book, you talk about this show you did, Head Rush, where you're trying to get kids interested in science. Could you talk about your experience with that? Um, yeah, so uh, I had been trying to figure out since this amazing side effect of Mythbusters had been that they it became a teaching tool. Um, we didn't set out to be a science show, but it was being taught in classrooms and homeschools um, because we used science as a tool. And so I thought I would love to harness this to inspire the 13-year-old girl that I used to be who started to lose interest in science. Like before that, it had been sort of fascinating to me. And I realized the difference was that it became very um, academic in a book learning sense versus a get your hands dirty sense. And I thought, okay, if I can do something that's bright and colorful and, you know, if I had done it today, it would have been a YouTube channel. But, you know, back then it was TV. So I, I tried to um, work with, I worked with the, the woman who was in charge of Science Channel and we created this head rush show, which was, you know, science uh, experiments that you could do at home, things that the whole show was aimed at that age group where girls generally and kids generally lose interest in science. And uh, we used Mythbusters clips, of course, to bolster the show. But on on in its essence, it really was just um, such a passion project for us. And I really, really enjoyed it. And we had two series run and we actually got a bunch of money from the Obama administration to help keep the show going. And he even invited me to the White House to uh, host the science fair with Bill Nye after Head Rush because he and his daughters love the show. I thought it was interesting because you say that uh, you say in the book, 13 year olds don't watch the science channel. Kids don't watch TV. They watch their computers. I mean, 
I think we all know that's true. <laughs> My kid watches YouTube more than she actually watches television now. I mean, I guess I don't have kids or anything, so I guess I'm kind of disconnected from that. And, you know, back in my day, kids watched television, none of this newfangled stuff. <laughs> I mean, they still do, but at the time, the the Science Channel audience was men 25 to 54 was like their main audience. And so I was making a show for 13-year-olds hoping that they were going to venture there. And it just, it was maybe, I don't know what their demos are now, but at the time, it's like the show was great, but we got way more play from people looking it up online than actually watching it in the time slot on the television. And we hadn't figured out a way to monetize that at that point to make it what, you know, these amazing YouTubers are doing now, like Simone Yurtz and, you know, uh, the physics girl Diana is doing, like all these great science shows that are being done from YouTube, they garner so much more audience than, you know, what we were getting trying to do it on TV. Yeah, I mean, you say that if you were to do it now, you would do it online. Do you do you Absolutely. Still think about, about doing that? I mean, it's definitely in my mind as an option, but uh, there's so many people doing it so well now that I'd have to find definitely an angle that would work for me. I just like I am I'm really in awe of the people that are pulling it off on the YouTube currently. I mean, you mentioned when you're talking to the head of the Science Channel that it's not just you. You say that a lot of girls drop out of interest in in, in science as teenagers and um, how much of that do you think is the way it's taught in sort of a boring way and how much of it is like other factors, other social factors and things? You know, I'm not an expert, but I feel like this is a conversation I've been having for decades because everybody has the same question. Everywhere I go, every school I speak at, every time I go to a science fair, somebody raises their hand and asks, how do I keep my daughter? How do I keep my, my kid? How do I keep them interested in STEM? And it's, it's a constant conversation and it, it's definitely, it's, the way girls learn is different than the way boys learn. The way uh, things are taught, or you know, it's it's hard to cater it um, clearly to each child, but to, to teach it in in the way that is going to be understandable. But just as a society in general, it's um, I, I feel like this is a question that we have to keep asking and keep this conversation going to find out why girls uh, become less interested in STEM jobs. And uh, personally, for me. What I'm doing now is to try to answer that question is I just joined a startup company called Smart Girls that makes toys for girls age like 5 to 12 that teaches them coding. And I'm hoping to move into other sciences um, because the way girls play and the way boys play is different. And when you look in the boy aisle, tons of science toys, tons of tech toys, tons of very robotic military looking toys all aimed at boys learning to code or boys learning to do science. Whereas in the girl aisle, it's all dolls and pink things. And there's, there's very few tech toys. There's, there's no coding toys for girls. So I joined the startup because I do want to figure out how do we inspire girls I personally, my own experience is that I learned to love science through play and having fun. So I'm hoping that that's how we actually create the next generation of girls who stay interested in STEM because early on they're told it's for you and it is fun and it, it isn't something that uh, they lose interest in because they learned to love it through playing. So, hey, <laughs> maybe we can change the future. Yeah, I mean, because you say in the book that that uh, when you do appearances, that young women young women will come up to you and hug you and cry and, and say that watching you was why they're now engineering or chemistry majors. I mean, that sounds very very powerful. 
it's humbling and it's beautiful. And I, I, I love that they say that to me, but I, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that their first line of role models can be a very supportive family. I think that's the hardest thing to do is, is, uh, find your role models at home. And if you're passionate about science, your kid's going to be passionate about science. You know, when they, if they see that very young, that that's something you love. I feel like it just becomes part of you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my parents are both scientists, so I definitely, I got a lot of that. Uh, they gotcha. <laughs> I also think you got to create, I would really like the media to take responsibility and create as many role models of, in the media of strong, smart women. Like when I was young and I'd watch TV, if there was a woman on TV, she was a nurse. She was never the doctor. You know what I mean? So it was, it's, it's definitely something that has changed and you see a lot more of the detective shows where they'll be like the strong scientist woman, like in uh, Bones, that kind of thing. I feel like more and more role models are being seen in the media. I just think that we have to spearhead that and not be reflective of society, but actually lead it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So having uh, written this book, do you think you'll ever, what was that like? Do you think you'll ever write any more books? I mean, you're asking me now, which I'm sort of like exhausted from it. So I never take anything off the table. I always want to create as many opportunities for myself as I can. So I would never shut that door. There's probably a second book in me. I just have to do a bunch of living before that happens. I heard you say you might want to write children's books. I've I've got a couple of those in me too. I've always I've had a, a children's book that I've been writing with my daughter since she was little because it's a it's an ongoing story. But um, well, you know I have all this TV stuff that keeps getting in the way. Hmm. But someday, someday I'll put it out there for the world. Do you think you'll ever write any science fiction? Uh, <laughs> I did in college, but it was terrible. <laughs> I uh, I I have a I. I <laughs> Yeah, no, not not currently, but I'm not taking it off the table either. You never know. <laughs> all right, well, that all sounds great. Hope the the TV stuff keeps getting in the way of your writing because that that sounds like a good opportunity. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed the book, and and yeah, I hope to see more books as well. And uh, we're all out of time, so I think we're going to have to wrap this up there. But so we've been speaking with Carrie Byron, and the book again. It's called Crash Test Girl. So Carrie, thank nice you. Nice talking so much to you. <laughs> thank you. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Carrie Byron for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Robert Collier, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.